You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. We're in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 today. And we're going to read through the whole chapter. And so as you get to Romans chapter 7 in your Bible, go ahead and stand few reasons we stand, just in reverence for the word of God. You read in Nehemiah chapter 8 that the word of God was read at the water gate and the people stood while it was being read. And as the word was read, just the Holy Spirit was moving in people's hearts and they began to, began to shout, Amen! Amen! And this great revival swept through the water gate that day. Tons of people repenting of their sin um, just amazing uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit there at the Watergate. And so it's just a good example for us, but also gives you guys a chance to get blood flowing through your legs because you're going to be sitting for quite a while. <laughs> Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I once was alive without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring death, I found to bring, or excuse me, the commandment which to bring, was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Do we even need to do a study after just reading that? I think we're done for the day, huh? Let's go home. Let's pray. Got you excited there for a second, didn't I? 
what a chapter, Lord. Lord, just something that when we read, Lord, it doesn't give us permission to sin or to keep letting sin rule in us, but Lord, it causes us to want to war that much more against sin. When we see how exceedingly sinful sin is, in verse 13 there, how wicked our flesh is, how wicked our members are, that they would take your good, pure, perfect ordinances and arouse us to wickedness. Lord, is just studying this week, just knowing my sin and hating sin, but hating my sin so much. And meeting with people in this church that just are so weary in the battle. They want to be conformed to your image. They want to walk in purity and in holiness. They want to imitate Jesus. And Lord, knowing that I'm no better than this Romans 7 guy, I need your spirit to expound upon this text this morning. Let it be your Holy Ghost that empowers us in the fight and in the battle. We need you, Jesus. We need you. Speak to us. Lord, do more than show us our sin and our wrong, but Lord, bring in power the solution. In your awesome name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> you may have noted so far the theme of Romans, and sometimes we get it a bit wrong. The theme of Romans is not God justifies sinners by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. And immediately you might be triggered to say, what? I thought that's exactly what the theme of Romans was. Close. The theme of Romans is that God is righteous in justifying sinners by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. God is a righteous judge in his epic plan of salvation. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 and 22, weeks ago we read that it's therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is simply the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And that's where the key verse of Romans chapter 1 verse 16 is, comes in great. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek where is the power to be conformed in the image of Christ? It's in the gospel of grace. And we don't have to be ashamed of it because of that, because it's power. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, another just amazing verse in the book of Romans. But to him who does not work, but who believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Where does the power come from? Man, it comes not from our working and our straining and our laboring, not to those who work, but to those who believe in him who justifies the ungodly. By chapter 6 of the book of Romans, and certainly by chapter 7, Paul is getting himself in some hot water. Paul is getting himself in some trouble. He's preaching this gospel of grace, and man, it's getting him letters 
from his parishioners in the middle of the week. It's getting him nasty emails and phone calls. People are starting blogs. You know, uh, you know the, uh, you know the uh, Egyptian preacher or something. You know, these blogs that would go out and just be like, "What are you talking about, Paul? What is this gospel of grace?" And man, the gospel of grace—it'll get you into trouble with the legalists. And it'll get you into trouble with the liberals. And so by chapter uh, 6, verse 1, you already have these people that are saying, Paul, this message of grace, grace, and they just mock him. It'll make people want to sin more so that they can make grace abound, this grace that you're teaching about. What then shall we say? Shall we continue to sin, Paul, so that your grace, your precious little grace, will abound? And of course he answers that. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then by verse 15 of chapter 6, more people. Oh, Paul, this message of grace, people are going to sin more now because they have grace. They're going to use grace as a license to sin. Well, now I can because I have grace. And the nasty letters come in and Paul, of course, says, certainly not. Grace is not a license to sin. We've been freed from the slavery of sin to now be slaves of righteousness. And as if that's not enough, After our first six verses of chapter 7 last week, Paul has now gotten himself in hot water again. The emails are flooding in. And, uh, you know, he's getting in trouble for his message from last week of the believer's relationship to the law now. And he said in verse 1, I'm talking to you who know the law, the law of Moses. But it stretches even further to us in, in Prineville today, any type of law that we have. That the believer is now dead to the law. We're not married to the law anymore. This law that aroused sin within our members. But now we're married to him who raised from the dead that we might bear fruit to God. But when we were married to the law, we used to bear fruit to death. And so you know that any Jew, any Jewish Roman that is reading this letter right now, Starts getting his email out, you know, AOL account. I'm writing Paul right now. Who do you think you are, Paul, to say you're an apostle of Jesus Christ? And you're going to just come here in chapter 7 and start bashing on the law? The nasty letters, they come on in. In verse 7 today where we pick up, you know, the question, are you saying, Paul, that the law is sin? Who do you think you are? By verse 13, are you saying that the law is death? Then explain to me Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Paul is in some boiling water, both from the message of grace and then the message that grace brings, that we are free from the law. We're not married to the law anymore. We've died to that marriage through Christ. But there's more even than that in Romans chapter 7. You may have noted in the latter half of the chapter that, and really, gosh, the whole thing, we see it probably culminate in the last 15 verses, that Paul flat out cares enough about people to be real about his own sin. I love that. I love that he's just real in this chapter, and he just says it like it is. That I, Paul the Apostle, man, I struggle with sin. On a daily basis, I am a weary warrior against sin. And I love that Paul loves us enough to be genuine in his letter. And we need more of that amongst the church today. We need more than just general confession in our prayer times. 
man, I need to know that you are struggling with the same things that I'm struggling with. And you need to know that I'm struggling with the same things that you're struggling with. And we're all struggling. And not one of us is Jesus Christ. Not one of us is the Messiah. Every one of us is sinners. And that goes clear back to the apostles like Peter and Paul who deny Christ and who write in the Romans 7. And who say in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the chief of all sinners. Paul the apostle, chief of all sinners. Thank you, Paul, for being real. Thank you, Paul, for writing these verses down for us and being straight up with your own personal struggle with sin. And we all know that when we're aware of our sin, we feel like a wretch. Just like Paul. It seems like nobody else has that struggle, even in this sanctuary, in our row or whatever. And it's just because we're not being real with each other. But if we would be real, man, there'd be such encouragement in the battle. There'd be such comfort. But we wouldn't just stay smoldering in that pit. We'd help each other and spur one another on towards love and good works. But Paul says here in Romans chapter 7, he shows us how not to deal with our sin. Chapter 7, how not to deal with our sin is to go back to the law. Don't go back to rules. Don't go back to regulations. Don't go back to perfection or goodness that's based upon our external labors and works. And there's such drawing powers of going back to the law. So many Christians are legalistic and want to go back to the law. Yes, rules and yes, regulations. And we set those things up for ourselves. But even more than that, we're talking anything external. Perhaps it's an emotional experience that you get when you come into the sanctuary. It's something that you try to muster up. And unless you get this emotional high or this emotional buzz when you're in the sanctuary or something, or in a worship service, unless you get something emotional, man, I am not right with God. I'm not, I'm not where I should be. There's something wrong because my emotions aren't just buzzing and tingling my neck right now. You know, or it, it goes so far beyond emotions. Ritual confession. Pilgrimages. Got to make it to Israel, then I'll be good. Or I've been to Israel, now I'm good. Now there's something in me that's better. I've been to Israel, I've been to the Vatican, you know. Wherever it is. Man, we are just looking for anything external. Man, I raise my hands today, or I'm raising them right now. I'm good, right? I'm good, Lord. I'm good. My hands raised, knees bowed. Something going, I'm good, right? Legalism. External things that make us think, now we're right with God. Or now I'm better. And we just have this attraction to going back to systems that say we're okay by external means. But Paul is saying, it is a scary thing to say, keep me in my cage. Chapter 7. Don't say that. Don't say, put me back in my cage. Put the rules around me. Rules, excuse me, got eyelash in my eye. It's those beautiful fluttering eyelashes that I used the curler on this morning. All right. Put the rules around me, man. But rules will never provoke love in us. It will never provoke love for Jesus. But love, love will provoke obedience. So in our study in the seventh chapter of Romans, we examine three points. The first we did last week, we've seen the relationship between the believer and the law. That the believer, the Christian, is dead to the law, no, no longer married to this perfectionist. He just always shows us where we're wrong and we got to do better. We're dead to that. Jesus has fulfilled it. Jesus has done the better. Okay, we studied that through verse 6. Today we begin verses 7 through 25, probably making it through verse 13 today, that the relationship between the sin and the law, 7 through 13, and then the relationship between the believer and sin. 
Now, as we start in verse 7, we begin with sin's advantage with the law. As John Piper, one of his messages was titled, you know, the tricky team of sin and the law. And it's just so crazy to think that, that sin teams up with the law, although the law doesn't want any part of sin. But sin uses the law to its advantage. And Paul will go into a defense of the law, despite this tricky team. Verse 7, let's go ahead and read it. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The statement that responds to verses 4 through 6 that we're dead to the law, married to Jesus. Now, finally, we're bearing fruit to God. That means before it, it was fruit to death. So is the law sin then? When you read verses 1 through 6, it's natural for the, the reader to think that the law is actually evil within itself. You know, it's a first thought for me, I know, I wrote it down when I first read through it, was, you know, it sure seems like the law is some kind of necessary evil that Jesus delivers us from. Thank goodness we died to it, so we didn't have to be married to it any longer. Or as John Stott says, all of this is strong meat and strong language. The law is apparently characterized as barring marriage to Christ, arousing sin, causing death, and impeding life in the spirit, so that the sooner we gain freedom from it, the better. It must have sounded to some like full-blown antinomianism, or, you know, the law is obsolete today. Paul then asked the ultimate antinomian question, there in verse 7, is the law sin? That's like an antinomian question. Let's get rid of the law. It's, it's worthless to us today. It's actually bad in and of itself. There's this paradox here that we see in verse 7. It seems like the law is some kind of sin, but it's not, Paul says. In fact, it's good. I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law said, thou shalt not covet. Well, you go to Psalm 19, verses 7 through 12, and you read this just beauty of the law. Psalm 19, 7 through 12, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, then much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. There's this beautiful passage, this psalmist just loving the law of the Lord, loving the word of the Lord. And Paul says, that is good. It is good because the law is not sin. But rather, it exposes sin. As clear back in Romans 3.20 says, By the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law is like an x-ray machine. It reveals clearly and plainly who you are, but you can't blame the x-ray machine for what it reveals. Take a baseball bat to the x-ray machine. You stupid thing, it's all your fault. It's not the x-ray machine's fault. It's what's inside of me's fault. Those cells that are multiplying and producing cancer, building upon one another. Paul says you can't blame the law either. And we're going to see here, verses 7 through 12, that it's, it's sin in us. The law basically sets the speed limit so we know if we're going too fast. We might never know that we're sinning unless that sign was there saying, hey, this isn't right. You're going too fast. It spells it out to us specifically. That's what the law does. And Paul says, I wouldn't have known covetousness if the law hadn't, hadn't said, thou shall not covet. Interesting that Paul uses covetousness here. Why not 
I wouldn't have known not to carve myself a graven image if the law wouldn't have said, hey, no whittling. Everyone knows that's a sin. Why didn't he pick that one? Why didn't he pick, keep the Sabbath holy? Don't be watching the Super Bowl on the Sabbath, man. Don't mess with that, you know. That special day set apart for the Lord. I wouldn't have known these things. It's interesting. The covetousness commandment. It's the 10th commandment. But it's also the one that shows us that sin is not merely external. But it's something that is internal. and It's something that is spiritual that's going on. Because the first nine, I mean, you can do a pretty good job. I haven't committed adultery, huh? I haven't. I haven't murdered anybody. I mean, nobody can say I murdered anybody. But covetousness, where does that take place? Anybody know where covetousness takes place? It's in our heart, right? It shows us that it's an internal thing. And Jesus does a number on the Sermon on the Mount by showing us that our lust, no one else will know about it but you and the Lord. It's something that takes place internal. And not only that, covetousness leads to the breaking of all of the other commandments. All of the other ones are broken. When we begin to lust and desire what's not ours and what we shouldn't have. Of course, coveting can be a good thing. I want more of the Lord. I want more, 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 God. I want more of you. I want more of the gifts. I earnestly desire the best gift so that I can be part of this body of Christ. But lusting after the worldly things... It leads to breaking all the other commandments. An example, David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, you read about it. He coveted another man's wife. This led to stealing another man's wife, which led to lying, which led to adultery or, you know, vice versa. Or, you know, it's all in there. And even murder, right? Idolatry, as we know, you know, sin is just idolatry. It's all happening there in David's life. And so Paul says, man, thank God for the law. Because it showed me more than my external. It showed me my internal sin. And verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. We learn from this, verse 8, and even verse 13, 13 kind of expounds upon it, how warped and hideous and evil sin is. Chapter 7 brings it home for us. How bad is my sin? Well, sin takes opportunity by the commandment of the Lord. Guys, that's, that's full-blown wickedness. That's what verse 13 says is exceedingly sinful. Rather than sin being exterminated by the law, which we sometimes think that it is, it's really excited by the law. It's excited by the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says that the strength of sin is the law. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? The strength. Can you just hear people like, I'm going to write Paul a letter that, you know, how can he say the strength of sin is the perfect law of God? Sin uses the law to arouse our members, verse 5 says. Just shows us how great the evil of sin really is. That it can take something holy like the law and twist it to promote evil. Exceedingly sinful, verse 13 you guys notice ever in certain movies and dramas and stories that the wicked person, you know, the, the evil man, the villain, sometimes they dress up to be something good and pretend to be something good and use a system that is good, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, at the climax of the movie, they show that they were just using that the whole time for evil and the good guys are like, oh, you dog, you know, how could, how could you do that? 
And then, you know, those of us that are watching the movie or reading the story, we're like, yeah, you are really bad now. I mean, before you were a bad guy. But when you take something good, politics, you know, you know, and you're running for governor, you know, but then it turns out you're a spy for the Russians. Oh, oh, the commies, you know, that's how bad they are. That's what sin does. It uses something beautiful and good as verse 12 and 14 show us. Something awesome. Something that the Holy Spirit would inspire David to write. I love the law. It's precious. It's better than fine gold. The New Living Translation for verse 8 says, But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would have no power. So the command gave opportunity to sin, or it gave sin a starting point, or a bridgehead, or kind of like an Air Force base, a base of operations to take off and bomb us from. The command gave sin that. It produced in me all manner of evil desires, the Bible says there. All manner. What's all manner of evil desires? Shouldn't steal candy. That's just wrong. You know, we kind of, no drinking or no, you know, no heroin, you know, and we're just like, mm-mm. Every manner, every manner. My bitter thought towards somebody. You know, how critical I am. At every moment of the day, the gossip, and the slander. I mean, just this week, I'm like, Lord, what's all manner? What is it? Just show me it all. Show me all the sin. Gosh, it's just so vast. And sin used the commandment to produce in me all of those things that aroused our passions, verse 5. It's like those of you that have teenagers, you know, you can probably empathize with this. You know, the teenage kid... Your son, you know, 15 years old, old enough to stay home and babysit the other siblings. Finally, you and your wife get to go out on a date night. And as you're leaving, you turn around, son, thank you so much for watching your bros and your sisters. You know, it's just such such a big kid. Hey, by the way, I was on TiVo, just looking through the programming. It was on TV tonight. And on channel nine at 830, there is something on there I don't want you to watch. I don't want you to go near it. Just stay away from it, okay, buddy? I love it. Give you a little spending money when I get home, okay? Where do you think this kid's mind is at 8.15? He doesn't even know what his brothers and sisters are doing. The pizza's burning in the oven. He's just looking at the TV. And you've been there, and I've been there. This kid would have never even thought to go to Channel 9 at 8.30 until the law was given, and that was the base that... You know, all manner of evils. I'm not only going to go to Channel 9, I'm going to TiVo Channel 9, and on the VCR in the other bedroom, I'm going to record it, and I'm going to hide that tape under my bed for a while. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> keep off the grass. Who's going to tell me to keep off the grass? Like, I don't know how to walk gently on grass. Did they just resod the grass? Did they just fertilize the grass? This is public land. My tax money pays for this grass. I'm walking on the grass. Don't fish here. I'm fishing here. Don't touch the wet paint. I just want to see if it's still dry or if it's still wet. Oh, I messed it all up. Shouldn't have put the sign there. I would have never thought to touch this stupid bench. I don't care about benches. You put a sign there, I'm going there. That's the arousal that the law does. Who are you to tell me not to touch paint? Am I five? I'm touching the paint. (laughs) Now you know why I was weeping at the beginning of the prayer today, because this is me. Once God draws a boundary for us, we are immediately enticed to cross that boundary. Is this God's fault? Is it the boundary's fault? 
Or is it sin in our hearts? It's not the law. It's the sin in us. James 1.14 Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. All through this section, we just see just that this sin uses the law and brings forth death. And here is the formula that sin takes off from. Sinful desires in our heart, enticement, arousal, conceiving of that desire, and a birth to sin, bringing forth death. Paul says, apart from the law, sin was dead. Sin was still present. It was kind of in a latent state, or kind of a dormant state. We just didn't really know how far it was taking us until God's righteous standards. The Phillips translation says, For sin, in the absence of the law, has no chance to function technically as sin. I mean, while the children of Israel were in Egypt, you know, Mama Israelite wasn't like, Now that's sin, you shouldn't do it. That's sin, that's against the precepts of the Lord. She had nothing to go off of. Who are you to tell me, Mom? You have it written somewhere? I can do what I want, when I want. And I'm going to do it. But there at Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning, tablets of stone, it began. And people were able to see just how bad their sin was. And that, yes, it technically was sin. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 4 Because the law brings about wrath. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In John chapter 15, Jesus says in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. The law shows us sin. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived. It came out of that dormant state. And I died. As the New Living Translation says, At one time, I lived without understanding the law. That's how it was dead. I didn't understand it. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. Another New Living Translation that I read said, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner doomed to die. By the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20 tells us. It's how we know that we are sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God. But what's this talking about? There's great controversy who the I is in in Romans. Who's this guy? Who's verse 9 referring to? It might be Paul's state of innocence before he knew the law and then it is bar mitzvah, you know, as the clown was doing some comedy jokes, you know, he realized, whoa, I am a sinner. <laughs> I was just reading the law here at the bar mitzvah and man, I am, I am doomed. That might be what it's talking about. Little children can be innocent before they know or understand the law. As Lenski says, he was quite secure amid all his sin and sinfulness. He lived in the sense that the death blow had not yet killed him. He sat secure in the house of his ignorance like a man living on a volcano and thought that all was well. Before the law, that's us. Living on a volcano, sipping pina coladas. Everything's good. Life is good. Verse 10 says, in the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Like the law says in Leviticus 18.15, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I'm the Lord. 
Or Luke 20, 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and testified, or tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Philip's translation, the commandment which was to be direction to life, I found as a sentence to death. The law is good. Those who completely do it, it's life. But James tells us when the guy that stumbles in one point, he's guilty of breaking all of the law. And is condemned. And it's death to him. For sin, verse 11, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Sin used the commands to kill me. That's how bad sin is. It deceived me. It promised what it could not deliver. It promised there would be no consequences for my sin. There would actually be pleasure. Nothing bad's going to happen. Who is this guy? Who is, is this Paul talking here? He was deceived by sin and it killed him. One man said, the identity of I, his references are not so personal as to apply to Paul himself exclusively. That they're general enough to include others. There are parallels in this section between Adam, you know, from Adam and Eve, Paul, and even the nation of Israel. And it goes even farther than that to us. We can be included in this. But let's just look at this, these parallel stages in the history of Adam and Paul. First of all, in verse 9 here, Paul was once alive apart from the law. This could refer or, or could parallel, correspond to the age of innocence in the garden. Rainbows and lollipops and kittens and, you know, frolicking and naming animals. I mean, that's paradise, right? Okay? This age of innocence. But when the commandment came, verse 9 says, this could refer to God's command to not eat anything in the garden. Or excuse me, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is in the middle of the garden. And you go back to verse 8. Sin took opportunity afforded by the commandment. Okay? So sin and the serpent, which was in the garden even before man, sin had no opportunity of attacking man until the command, thou shalt not eat of it, had been given. Adam and Eve may have never gone to the middle of the garden and, you know, they're 900 or more, you know, I guess not, death hadn't come yet, so for infinity. We're never going to go to the middle of the garden. Don't go to the middle of the garden. Don't eat of that tree. Boom, where's Eve? Hmm, interesting where I find myself today. Beautiful tree, <laughs> you know. I love reptiles. Slither up my arm. Sin took opportunity afforded by the commandment. Then in verse 11, Paul complains that sin deceived him. We can recall Eve's complaint that the devil deceived her. It was the snake's fault. Then Paul awakens to his sin because of the prohibition of covetousness in verse 7. The sin of Adam and Eve was primarily that of lust and covetousness. For that which was not theirs. And then the disobedience to God's commandment brought death to both Paul and Adam. And so the sequence of law, sin, death, so prominent in Romans, was prominent in Genesis, prominent in Exodus, because, you know, there's a correlation there with Israel, you know, in Egypt, hanging out, coming out of, you know, or being slaves in Egypt, not so much hanging out. You know, coming through the Red Sea, coming up to Mount Sinai, we're good. The Lord calls Moses up the mount, thunder and lightning. Israel, still good, we're good, right? We're good, okay, hey, I got an idea, I'm kind of tired of waiting. Let's all get our gold jewelry and let's make a golden calf. 
nothing wrong with that. You know, let's do it. So they do it. Of course, conscience convicting them, but nothing written. Moses comes down. Here's the partying going down, the sexual immorality, the idolatry. Hadn't even given them the law yet. They're breaking the law. And Moses breaks the law on the rocks. Goes back up, gets another set, spends some time up there. Comes down, executes those who were sinning. And then from that point on, not only the Ten Commandments, but the 603 others for Israel 613 launching pads for sin to lie and to deceive and to bring forth death. And yet, the law itself, not sin. Sin deceives. Two ways that sin uses the law to lie. Write these down. Two ways... That sin teams up with the law and uses the law to deceive and to lie. Number one, hopeless self-indulgence. Sin tells us when we look at the law, you can't do the commandments. And even if you could, you wouldn't want to. So, go medicate yourself through self-indulgence to sin. And this is found in us. I can't do it, or I've failed recently, and so I'm just going to go all out. And I'm just going to medicate with more of this sin. I'm just going to, I can't do this righteous standard of God, and so I'm just not going to do the righteous standard of God all the way. And it's one way that sin deceives us. You can't do it. It's hopeless, so self-indulge. Secondly, Hopeful self-righteousness. Sin lies to us and says, ha ha, you can do this. You can do this. So muster up the willpower. And just be better than the guy next to you. Just be good. And just get yourself ready for judgment, man. That is a lie that sin uses in us when we look at the law. I can do this. I can do it on my own. I don't need Jesus. I've got Rory from the stock of the Rogers. <laughs> do you know the great things that we've done? Yeah. I don't need the crutch of Christ. I got it. Hopeful self-righteousness. We all can fall into either one or both of those lies. And the good news is, is that there's hope for you today. For the self-righteous, you'll see Isaiah tell you, your righteousness is like filthy rags. But I'll make you as white as snow. For the hopeless, you hear the beautiful words of Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I'm the chief. Man, if you're hopeless, and Paul says he's the chief of sinners, and that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, hopeful now. Man, hopeful, but not in our own works of righteousness, but in the completed work of Jesus on the cross, hopeful in his grace, that is extended to us through the conduit of faith. Faith and belief resting in the finished work of Christ. Verse 12, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Is the law sin? Certainly not. Emphatic, violent, no. The law is good. The law is holy, set apart, high above anything else. The law is just. If someone can fulfill all of the law, you're just. Come on in. If you break any of it, you are justly condemned. The law is just. And the law is good. 
It is so good to look into the law. As Galatians says, she is a tutor who sits by us and teaches us. Son, you're a sinner. Son, you shouldn't have done that. Daughter, you fell short. You blew it. Messed up. God's righteous. You're not. These are good things to hear. It's good for our marriage when we hear this. It's good for our children when we are confronted with our sin. It's good. Exploratory surgery is good. Painful. Dreadful. But good. The law shows us like a scalpel our sin. Again, it's the x-ray. It's not the the healer. Man, I, I so want to finish the chapter today. And really, I just want to get into chapter 8. But if I could give you a spoiler alert for the next couple weeks. Paul shows us the dilemma of our sin. And especially in the next 15 verses. He shows us this dilemma of sin, this problem that we have. But he doesn't just leave it there. You have a problem. X-ray is showing you're a wretched man. Verse 24, I think it is. But then he shows us the solution. The solution. What, excuse me, who shall deliver us from this body of sin and death? I thank my God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then enter in chapter 8, where no longer is the warrior weary, but he's walking in the spirit of God, given to Christians to empower them for obedience. The good news is, even though we can't do it, he supplies the power to do it. He supplies the power to do it. As we take communion this morning and the worship team can come back. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.